the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Sometimes Jesus confronts the stuff that we're not supposed to be doing. What do you do with him then? When the Holy Spirit begins to bring conviction to your heart, and and he will, because that's his job, the Holy Spirit convicts us because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to be living in sin. And so as children of the Lord, if we experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we have one of two reactions to that. We can say, thank you, Lord, I'm sorry, and I repent of this. Or we can say, I don't want to respond to this, and I'm really bothered about this conviction. Let's face it, we all mess up. We all have done that one thing that we still regret to this day. That one thing that we think God couldn't possibly forgive, so we don't even ask. But today, Pastor Gary will remind you of God's duality as merciful and lust. When we confess and repent our sins, God is more happy to forgive us and cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. But God is also just. If we are unrepentant, we will feel that conviction from the Holy Spirit. Mercy is in His nature, but so is justice. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew chapter 8 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. That's great that you want to follow me, but he's going to challenge this guy because he's going to say to this guy, in essence, foxes have holes, birds have nests. They were made for this world, okay? They they were made for this environment. A fox will sleep in a hole. A a bird will sleep in a nest and lay eggs and, and all of that. But he says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, I'm not really made for this world. And if you really want to follow me, you have to be aware that neither are you. Neither are you. And we need to take this to heart. Don't get too attached to this world. We don't belong here. Jesus said, this is not my environment. This is not my home. Are you willing to be a pilgrim and a sojourner with me? That's what he's saying. Now, Peter, when he would write his epistle in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, we are aliens and strangers in a sinful world. We are aliens and strangers. We don't belong here. We're only passing through, folks. Do not get too attached to this world. This is not where we have our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we have to live with an eternal perspective. We have to live with an eternal focus. We have to live with eternal goals and eternal mindsets. Jesus says, that's great, you want to follow me? But I just want you to know, I'm not made for this world. If you want to follow me, you have to be aware that this environment is not going to be suitable to us. It's suitable for birds. It's suitable for foxes. Not for the Son of Man. Are you really willing to follow me? Well, 
another disciple, verse 21. And notice, another disciple, indicating that the first guy was also a disciple. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, that's not a heartless thing that Jesus is saying because we need to step into the Jewish mindset of the day and understand what the conversation really is all about. This guy's dad has not died. He's not even in the throes of death. Because if he had died, this guy would be burying his father already. The Jews had to bury their own dead before sundown. He's not going to be having a casual conversation with Jesus in Capernaum. Oh, let me just first go bury my my dad. My dad just died. His dad didn't just die, and he's not near death. What he's saying is, and this is, this is you know, the context and this is the culture, what he's saying is, wait until my dad dies, and then when my dad has died, then I will come follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. If you really want to follow me, you can't wait for what is that ideal time? Well, when dad dies, when I have all my bills paid, when I get my master's degree, when I, What? What, when, when is going to be the ideal time? And Jesus is saying to him, basically, you, you're not willing to follow me because you're waiting for whatever that ideal time is once your dad dies. This guy's dad could be still very young. He might be talking about many years down the road. What Jesus sees into the heart of both of these guys is that they're really not as committed to him as they want to appear. The first guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Really? Because I'm not cut out for this environment, are you? The other guy. Well, let me first go bury my dad. It's it's not the right time yet. When will be the right time? There's no better time than now. And some of you right now, I heard an expression one time say, you know, maybe some of you are mugwumps. You know, you're kind of on the fence. You got your mug on one side and your wump on another. And you're just kind of on the fence. You haven't really made a decision. And you're just wondering, when's that ideal time I'm going to make a decision? Now? There's no better time than now because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And this guy says, well, I'll follow you when my dad dies. And after I bury him, then I'll make a commitment. No, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me is an expression used 19 times in the gospel. Jesus constantly is calling people, follow me, follow me, follow me. Well, verse 23, because they're now in the boat, it says, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. So now they're on the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and here's what happens. A storm comes up, verse 23. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Now, this is actually not all that uncommon. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest fresh water uh, uh, body of water on the planet. It is about 700 feet below sea level. And as a result, it like sits in a basin. And winds can come over the Golan Heights, the mountain range there, and suddenly when it mixes with the warmer uh, air of the basin, it can churn up a storm instantly. In March of 1992, it was documented 10-foot waves on the Sea of Galilee that just swept up out of nowhere, capsizing boats, And what happens here is this uh, storm comes up out of nowhere. Sea of Galilee measures 13 miles north to south, 8 miles at its widest point uh, east to west. And here they are. Storm comes up on the lake. The waves swept over the boat. But it says in verse 24, Jesus was sleeping. (laughs) Jesus was sleeping. Now, that might look funny to us, the idea that there's a storm and Jesus is sleeping. 
But I think it's a beautiful picture of how our Lord is just never worried. And it's a good thing to remember, too, that in your storm, He's not worried either. He's got everything under control. And He's sleeping. He's calm. He's, you never see Jesus in the Scriptures rushed. You never see Him anxious. You never see Him afraid. And so here He is sleeping. And the disciples went and woke Him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, when Mark records this event in Mark 6.38, he says that they say to him that Jesus was asleep in the stern on a cushion, and they said that they woke him saying, don't you care if we drown? You don't care. Don't you care? Now, Matthew doesn't use the word care here. He just says that they woke him up and said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Yeah, that's a great question to ask, because if for no other reason Jesus allowed this event to help communicate that he is God, because they ask, who is this, that he even calms waves and the winds, and there's actually a psalm in Psalm 89, you can just write it in the margin of your Bible right there, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, this is what it says, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea, when its waves mount up, you still them. That's a a psalm, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, that directly attributes the ability to calm the waves and the sea to the Lord God Almighty. So if the disciples had known the psalms, and maybe they did, maybe they were connecting the dots in their mind, like, who is this? Does this have have anything to do with Psalm 89, when the Lord God Almighty is the one who has the power to calm the, the storms and the waves and the wind? Yes, in fact, this was, in fact, a way that Jesus would demonstrate his own deity in their very presence. Well, verse 28 says, When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Sea of Galilee, of the the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Now, Mark and Luke also talk about this scene. Mark and Luke uh, say that there was only one. Matthew's gospel say that there are two. And this is one of these places, this is a sticking point for skeptics when they read this kind of thing and they say, well, in Matthew's gospel it says that there were two demoniacs and in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel they say there's only one. There's a contradiction of the Bible. It's not a contradiction of the Bible. You always have to take the sum total and you, and you comparatively look at the gospels and you realize that what it indicates to us is simply this, that Mark and Luke recorded the dominant one of the two. And the one that spoke the most was the one that Mark and Luke focused on, but that Matthew records there were actually two. Maybe one of the guys didn't say anything. It says how they spoke, but you know, are two people speaking in unison? No, one person out of two is going to be the dominant personality and it's going to be the one speaking. And this, and, and so when this one demoniac speaks, this demon-possessed man, by the way, look, demonic possession is a real thing. I don't believe when you look at the, at the totality of Scripture that you can make the argument that a Christian can be demon-possessed because the Holy Spirit is not going to share the space with demons, okay? If you belong to Jesus, if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you cannot also be possessed by demons, 
But you can be oppressed, okay? Demonic oppression, demonic, the demonic realm that is unseen is a real unseen evil realm. And that's why Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay? Demonic activity is real. We don't see it, but it is there. Uh, so even Christians can be oppressed. We can be, in different ways, uh, tormented in the spirit realm. Uh, but you can't be possessed. I know some of you will argue with me on that. It's okay. We can you know, respectfully debate that. But, but you still need to be open to the reality of demonic possession, that some people who don't know Christ can be actually possessed by demons. And Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, no doubt on mission. He's on assignment here because there's a couple of guys that need deliverance. And here they are, they're demon-possessed. Nobody wants to go near them. When you look at the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, and you combine what they say about these guys, it tells us in their accounts that these guys would cut themselves. It tells us in in their Gospels that they were naked. So I want you to envision just unkempt, you know, uh, guys who are like cutting themselves and, uh, you know, growling that whole scene. Okay, just, you know, use your imagination a little bit and... um, And as they approach, in verse 29, uh, they say, or at least one of them says to Jesus, What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Now note that. They attribute a title of divinity to Jesus. They don't submit to Him. They have sealed their faith in the rebellion. Where do demons come from? Demons are fallen angels that rebelled when Lucifer rebelled against God in heaven. And Revelation 12 says that a third of the stars were swept with the dragon's tail. That is a euphemism for angels. That there were about a third of the angels who rebelled with Lucifer when Lucifer rebelled against God. Now, how many is a third? We don't know because we don't know how many angels that there are. There are myriads and myriads of angels, so a third might represent, who knows, thousands, hundreds of thousands? And these fallen angels are now known in the spirit realm as demons. Now, the Bible happens to tell us that the worst of those fallen angels are kept in an abyss, thankfully, so that even the worst of the demons don't have free reign to torment or to possess. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment... And he goes on to talk about it. Jude will mention it also in Jude's letter, verse 6. He says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. But now, listen, Revelation chapter 9 tells us that there will be, as part of the tribulation period, an opening of the abyss, and these worst of the worst demons will be allowed to come out and torment people. Now, thankfully, if you believe as I do, the chronology of events of Scripture, we won't be here for that day because we'll be raptured before the tribulation. But these demons are the worst of which are kept in the abyss. Otherwise, other demons have free reign in the spirit realm I say free reign, but with limitations, because God is always ultimately sovereign. And some have possessed these two guys. Now, in the other Gospels, it tells us that Jesus asks their name. 
And the demoniac speaks and says, we are legion, for we are many. Now, a legion in a Roman army was 6,000. Is it possible that 6,000 demons were possessing one person? I don't know. Frankly, I don't, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, look, one demon is too many, okay? It doesn't matter, 6,000 or one. One is too many. But the other thing you have to remember is, when can you really believe a demon? So when Jesus says, what is your name? And he goes, Legion, for we are many. Really? Maybe it was just one anyway. But yeah, oh, we're a legion. You know, oh, yeah, we're 6,000. Oh, you liar. You know, because Satan is a liar and the father of lies, right? So you, you don't even know what the truth is there because it's coming from a demon. So can you really believe it anyway? Okay. But in the other accounts, the demons ask Jesus, don't throw us into the abyss, which tells us that they know more than even a lot of Christians seem to know. And that is that Jesus is the Son of God. <laughs> And that there is a future related to the abyss. They know. They don't submit. Their fate is sealed. They've already rebelled against the Lord. But yet they plead with him and they call him son of God. This is the first time that the title son of God is used in the Gospels. And it comes from demons. They recognize that he is the Son of God. They say, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Notice that. They even know prophecy, that there's an appointed time when the demons will be judged. And eventually the Bible says in Revelation that all the demons and Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist will all be thrown into the lake of fire where they will be perpetually tormented, not annihilated. There's no such thing as the doctrine of annihilation. Some people think that, well, when, those, when people go to hell, then they're just annihilated. No, they're not. It's perpetual torment. But God doesn't want anyone to go there. That's why he sent Jesus to die, so that we would escape hell. We deserve hell, but we only go there by our choice, by rejecting Jesus. And he made the way possible for us to never have to experience that. But here are these demons. They're having this conversation. It tells us here further on, verse 30, that some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. Now, Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 5 that it was a, a herd of about 2,000, about 2,000 pigs. And the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Um, Luke's gospel is the one that says that they add, please don't throw us into the abyss, Luke chapter 8. Now... You have to ask yourself, remember, this is Jewish culture. Pigs are not kosher. It's against the law to eat pork, to have pigs. They are unclean animals. What in the world is a community doing with 2,000 pigs? A Jewish community with 2,000 pigs. And so when the demons say, well, why don't you just go ahead and cast us into the herd of pigs, Jesus says in verse 32, Go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. There's only real one precipice at the Sea of Galilee, so we go there as part of our touring time where it juts out over the Sea of Galilee. It's probably the most likely place because it is on that side. It is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee where this precipice juts out, and it's the most likely place where this event occurred because that's probably where the pigs ran off the embankment and down into the water, and then um, and they died. Now, I always make the jokes about deviled ham and suicide, and I'm not going to do that again. Um, 
that would just be, you know, being a ham. But anyway, um, but, here, but here they all die. And then, verse 33, those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Why would they do that? I mean, the, I mean Jesus just comes and delivers the two most, the two craziest men of town, these demon-possessed men that everybody was afraid of. Wouldn't you want him to do some other miraculous stuff in town? Wouldn't you be glad to see a guy like this come to your town? I mean, here comes Jesus, and he delivers these guys, and they come into their right minds, and they are completely delivered from this possession, and they are calm, and they are kind, and they are healed. No, you you don't want Jesus around if you want to raise pigs that are against the Jewish law because now he's just disrupted your livelihood that you shouldn't really have been having as a livelihood. And so sometimes Jesus confronts the stuff that we're not supposed to be doing. What do you do with him then? When the Holy Spirit begins to bring conviction to your heart, and, and he will because that's his job, the Holy Spirit convicts us because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to be living in sin. And so as children of the Lord, if we experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we have one of two reactions to that. We can say, thank you, Lord, I'm sorry, and I repent of this. Or we can say, I don't want to respond to this, and I'm really bothered about this conviction. Do we welcome Jesus into every area of our hearts and lives, or are we wanting him to go away because we really don't want the conviction? Don't despise conviction. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction is what brings us to the place of greater surrender when we respond in the right way. I, I had a guy years ago, not, not here at our church, it's actually when I was a youth pastor, I had, I had a guy years ago come to me struggling with pornography and saying to me, would you please pray that God would take away the conviction? I, I said, What? Would you please, I mean, I just want to confess something, if we're not, would you please pray that God takes away the conviction? I said, no, no, I'm not going to pray that God will take away the conviction. The conviction's a good thing. Conviction is what brings us to our knees. Conviction is what reminds us of sin. It's what, it's, that is what should lead us to repentance. It is His kindness that leads us to repentance. God's conviction in our lives is not to be despised. We're not to wish that God would just go away. Please, Jesus, just leave. We are to say, okay, as As revealing as this is, as vulnerable as this feels, as uncomfortable as the conviction, thank you, Lord, that you love me enough to point this out in my heart. Now, Lord, cleanse me, and I ask for your forgiveness, and help me in this so that I will not continue to repeat this. Lord, cleanse my heart as my gracious, loving, compassionate Father. That's what he wants of us. His conviction is a good thing. Welcome it and respond to it with humility and brokenness. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God never despises a broken, contrite heart. But he exalts the humble, but he will humble the proud. These people, Jesus, get out of our way because you bring conviction. We we don't want conviction. Oh, forget the fact that you just healed two guys. We don't like what you represent to us. And may we always be open to that still small voice of the Holy Spirit whenever he speaks conviction to our hearts that we would respond with brokenness and humility before him. Hope is an open ocean Jump in and you'll find the corner 
Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person. That includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know